It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is The Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to the Great Writer Share podcast, where every week I hijack an hour or so of some time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join me on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, raw and bounce. Today's date is the 22nd of January and I am excited to have released an episode last week and to say that I am back. Um, For listeners of the show, you might notice that last week was a bit of a different formula um, than I usually follow. But it was an episode that gave me a chance to catch up with Luke, who's one of my favourite people of all time. And also, um, it was a good chance to get into the mechanics and systems of how we plan the new year, goal set. And uh, just to get the show back up and running, um, for people, just to reiterate for people um, who might not have caught last week's, uh, I just want to do a quick shout out and say thank you to everyone um, who has either stuck with me over the past six to eight weeks while the podcast was hot on hiatus um, and people that have also reached out as well. I had an overwhelming amount of people that got in touch just to check that I was okay. And uh, I mean, I was, it was just a case of prioritizing certain things and everything is settled back down now. We're in a brand new year and uh, I missed this. I missed talking <laughs> into a microphone by myself in a room um, and imagining that people were listening. But uh, there's something there's something nice about podcasting and being able to Air your thoughts. For me, podcasting is a good way to actually meet new people, meet people that are like-minded that I would never have met before. And uh, it's through a lot of the podcasting that most of my best connections with other writers have come, how I've met uh, people that I never thought I'd meet in my life, and just, yeah, kind of widened that circle of people that I network with. So if there is anyone out there at the minute that's thinking about starting a podcast or wonders if they've got what it takes, I'll be honest, once you get into the main mechanics and once you can you know, brush up a bit of audio and put a, a thing together, you're, you're, you're set, you can go and, and people will find you if you if you just put out the content regularly. Um, we've proven that with the other stories podcast, we proved it with the story studio and uh, yeah, with this one as well, it's, um, it's nice to see sort of people responding and listening to the show and yeah, I'm back baby, as corny as that sounds. <laughs> um, so what else did I want to say today? The podcast is back. Uh, I have currently been batching a load of episodes for upcoming guests, so people who are supporters on Patreon, which I'll do a shout out to in a minute, um, are currently getting bombarded with a list of incredible talent of people who I'm inviting on the show, Uh, and one of the benefits of being on Patreon is that you get to ask your questions to the people that are coming uh, to the interview chair. So um, I've got a few people coming up, I've got people like Michael David Wilson from the This Is Horror Network, and uh, he's a one of our regular contributors to the other stories, very, very talented horror writer. Um, we've got people like Steph Green. We've got people like Meg Cowley. Uh, next week will be an interview with Katie Forrest. So lots of stuff going on, lots of things getting scheduled in. Oh, Craig Falconer as well, um, a sci-fi author. So loads of people coming up. If you want to get advance notice on every guest that's coming onto the show, as well as asking them any questions that you have live on air, then uh, yeah, just jump over to Patreon Um And I will do another shout out in a minute with a bit more information on that. So keep on listening. Uh, So uh, I've also been diving into a brand new series. I finished a series over Christmas, which was, 
Oh, incredibly gratifying. So uh, somehow managing to navigate the ins and outs of spending time with family uh, and friends. Um, and Christmas is lovely and I love every minute of Christmas. It changes a lot as you dive into this kind of thing full time because if you don't plan your time properly or if things get on top of you, then you'll more than likely have to work through the holidays um, pretty much every day while some people around you don't. And it's not a bad thing. It's one of the pros and cons of going full time as an author. And I think it's kind of uh, individual to whatever you want to do um, as to how you see that. But yeah, it was it was nice. It was uh, I got to spend a lot of time with my family, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, And now I'm diving into a new series. and I'm excited to say that that series is in partnership with the wonderful Martha Carr, who was a guest on this show. I believe she was episode three or four, if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, But yeah, we're working on something together, which is kind of incredible to have someone so talented working uh, alongside me. And I'll be writing in her universe in a genre which I've not yet approached, but I've written around uh, a lot. So uh, diving a bit into urban fantasy, which will be exciting to see uh, what results that yields. And I'm very much looking forward to the story. It's all planned out. It's going to be absolutely beautiful. So uh, that's another one for for 2020. Um, And the last thing I'll mention that we've got going on, uh, that I've got going on this week is I am midway through running the Writing Short Horror Stories mini course with Luke Condor where we've taken a cohort of uh, willing writers to jump into a Facebook group and we are teaching them the mechanics of getting basically getting your ass in your chair and writing that story. So by the end of the week, everyone should uh, come out with a short story that they're happy with. Um, not necessarily have to be horror, but horror is the theme that we go with because it's run in affiliation with the Other Stories podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm really impressed with what people are coming up with so far. So far, we've done a lot of ideation and people hitting their drafts. So it's really exciting to see people producing, people who have struggled to commit time to their craft and are just getting it done. And it's the third time um, that the course is run. The first two times, well, the first time Luke ran it by himself, the second time uh, I joined in. And we've had a pretty pretty good success rate of people ending with at least something tangible that they, they've written and they can edit. So yeah, that, that finishes Sunday. So I'll be excited to uh, report about that hopefully next week in the intro. Uh, but as promised... Quick shout out to Patreon, um, the Patreon page that I have and that everyone supports through basically keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels turning and supports the show um, because there are a lot of sort of costs behind the scenes and all that kind of jazz that um, makes it not impossible to run the podcast, but it obviously helps having lots of you guys showing your support. And I did want to do a quick shout out to uh, every one of my Patreon supporters because Pretty much 99% of you stuck with me over the past eight weeks, which I mentioned privately you guys didn't have to do during the period in which nothing was coming out of the show. Um, but every one of you did, and I, I could not be more thankful. So big thanks to David Hines, Harley Christensen, John Cronshaw, Jen Mitchell, Innes Richens, Ian J. Middleton, P.T. Hilton, Michael Anderley, Jerry Evanoff, and Mark McClure. Thank you so much for sticking with me um, while I was going through a bit of a transitionary period. And... I'm back and I'm ready to smash it and give you guys some value for what you've been uh, getting involved in. So yeah, massive thank you. Um, There are no new patrons this week, but if anyone is interested in getting involved in the Patreon behind the scenes part (laughs) of the show, uh, just go over to www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash great writers share. Um, and like I say, there are loads of bonuses, early access to episodes, ask guests questions, join in our Slack group, you name it, just go over there and check it out. Um, a new segment I'm going to add in, in light of uh, today's guests, 
I'll announce the guest first. That will make more sense. Still rusty. Uh, so today's guest is Bruce Olav Solheim. Um, and Bruce is a professor of history at Citrus College in uh, Glendale, California. He is a writer of paranormal, um, his own personal paranormal experiences, a uh, paranormal person. Um, and uh, he's written in various different mediums. He's written in comics, in plays. He's written music. Uh, he has... Um, also kickstarted the Boots to Books course for veterans to help veterans get access into education. Um, and this interview was endlessly fascinating. I'm, I'm a person, and you'll hear me say this on the interview, I'm, I'm agnostic when it comes to the paranormal side of things, but I'm open to a possibility that potentially there might be something there. And uh, in this interview, we go very, very deeply into um, Bruce's backstory, into how he took that leap from being an academic professor and taking the gamble of publishing his own experiences within the paranormal into a collection of books, uh, what that's done for himself, what that's done for his reputation, what that's done for sort of um, supporting people who have similar experiences and need an outlet to share that. Um, we go a lot into his military background and uh, the principles that he learned that have been transferred into his writing, as well as the creation of the Boots to Books course. Um, and a lot about trusting the muse as well and how Bruce gets his words down, what his process looks like and how he actually gets the words down on the page. So we kind of dive into quite a lot here. And uh, for people who might be sceptical of the paranormal, I think uh, go into this with an open mind. Um, everyone's got their own experiences. Everyone's got their own way that they see the world. And I think that Bruce has a lot of things of value to say to anyone who uh, has considered the possibility that paranormal is there, believes that paranormal is there, but also people who are just looking for ways to memoir and chronicle their life as well. So uh, keep on listening. But the new segment that I'm going to add in every week is uh, once I've introduced a guest, I'm going to ask a question of the week based on this interview. So I'll ask it at the beginning, I'll ask it at the end. And uh, this week's question is, what, if any, have been your experiences with paranormal, the paranormal, and how do you approach the paranormal in your writing if you do? Uh, so if you want to answer that question, just tag me on Twitter, on Instagram at Wilcox Author, and it's Wilcox, W-I-L-L-C-O-C-K-S, Author. Or just use the hashtag GreatWritersShare and I'll find you. Um, yeah, so without any further ado, let's dive into the interview with the one and the only Bruce Olav Solheim. Bruce Olav Solheim is a distinguished professor of history at Citrus College in Glendora, California. He served for six years in the US Army as a jail guard and later as a helicopter pilot. He is the founder of the Veterans Program at Citrus College and co-founded with Manuel Martinez and Ginger de Villarose the Boots to Book Transition Course, the first college course in the United States designed specifically for recently returned veterans. Bruce has published eight books, one comic book, and has written 10 plays, two of which have been produced, and spent his time exploring and documenting his experiences with the paranormal. Bruce, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, I appreciate it. Now I'm excited to have you. I, uh, I, I find you a very, very interesting man in some of the, uh, the research that I've been diving down um, and looking a bit more into sort of what you do, where you've come from. And um, I mean, you've got a hell of a story behind you about your, your sort of family's journey <laughs> to America, your, your journey sort of throughout your life. Um, but one question that I want to start at, and it's probably one that you've been asked a lot of times, but I, it's, it's just something that always intrigues me considering that I'm, I'm agnostic about the paranormal. Mm -hmm. um, how do you define the paranormal? 
Well, I, the way I define it is that it's really normal. <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of contrary there. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, mostly what's accepted is the idea, you know, ghosts and hauntings and even people would some people would include UFOs and aliens and so forth. Uh uh you know, demons and angels and telepathy and telekinesis and all that stuff would be considered paranormal. Mm. But uh, to me, because I've lived a paranormal life, it's very normal. And I have other ideas about it that I think that a lot of people, uh, even people who are skeptical, uh, you know, like like actually my wife, Ginger, uh, that that they have had paranormal things happen, but maybe they haven't realized it or maybe they put it in a different context. For instance, like the, you know, have you ever felt like somebody's staring at you and you turn around and the, you know, they are, somebody is staring at you. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that would be officially paranormal. Cause how would you know that you don't have eyes in the back of your head? So it's a, it's a sixth sense. It's something that we all have. Some have a little bit more than others, but I think it's very normal. Actually, it's much more normal than people think. So that's kind of my, my take on it. okay and when was the first time that you became aware of this paranormal side of you yeah um the first incident incident was at age four and i was in norway northern norway and it was an angelic experience it was a healing experience and uh, i was very very sick and it's on a remote island 200 miles above the arctic circle in northern norway we're visiting my grandmother and I was outside playing in the snow. It was wintertime, and I came home. I was very sick. I had a high fever. I, I had trouble moving my limbs. I couldn't move my head from side to side. My head, my neck was totally stiff. So I went to lie down in the kitchen where it was very warm. Uh, my grandmother had a little bed where she would nap uh, in the kitchen. So I was lying down there, and relatives came over and were looking at me, and I kept getting sicker and sicker. And they said, uh, oh, this is what happened to Uncle Sven when he got uh, polio. You know, this is what happened to so-and-so, and they died the next day. And it was all this scary Grim Reaper kind of talk going on. And my grandmother and my, and my dad and my, uh, and my mom were very upset. And uh, I, was, I remember I was crying, and I kind of nodded off to sleep. And other people, they wandered out of the kitchen into the living room. And... Uh, I remember waking up and uh, there was a very bright light above me in in the uh, ceiling, these old beamed ceilings in these old Norwegian farmhouses. And it was a very bright light and it was very warm and it didn't speak to me, but I knew that it was a presence of some kind. Even though I was very young, I, I knew that it was something good because I was no longer fearful and I was able to go to sleep and sleep soundly. And when I woke up in the morning, I was completely fine. And uh, my mother said it was a miracle, and my grandmother said it was my guardian angel. So wow. from that that point on, I think it kind of opened up a door. Uh, for the, from that point on, uh, that two experiences, you know, I think that experience kind of opened it up. Uh, that was the first one, and then of course my mom was psychic. She wasn't a professional psychic, but she she you know was very psychic. Uh, so I think it's partly, uh, you know, hereditary as well. And uh, we had experiences together uh, as I was growing up until I left home at age 20. Um, and like, you know, reading cards and so forth, we could read each other's minds, you know, that or, you know, through telepathy. And, and so she kind of trained me, but kind of unofficially, not officially. Mm-hmm. You know, she wasn't like saying, okay, I'm going to train you as a, as a psychic. It was just more her interest, her skill 
that she was passing on in her own way and mm. against my father's wishes, by the way. <laughs> I bet that was an interesting dynamic. Yes, it was. Mm. And of course, these um, experiences you've had since, like you say, you were age four, you've, you've turned mm-hmm. into at least two books now. And I heard you say in a recent interview that you're looking at a third as well. Yes. What was the, um, what was the trigger in which you thought, okay, these experiences, let's combine them together into the book timeless and put them out to, for people to sort of digest and get that glimpse into your life. What did that process look like for you? Yeah. It, and it's, you know, it's like, you know, with writing, I think with great risk can come great reward mm. in writing. You know, if you hold back too much or try to formulate too much and, you know, try to follow a genre too closely and try to emulate somebody, I think the best thing you can do as a writer is take risks, you know, take risks yes. and be willing to, to fall down and it's okay. And that, that's where you cut closest to the bone and that's where people, people appreciate that. So what prompted me to get started on, you know, cause I'd written standard history, you know, books about foreign policy and, you know, that type of thing, women's leadership and the Vietnam war, you know, standard things that a historian would write. But in 2016, in September, a dear friend of mine, childhood friend named Jean uh, Torkelson, who was also Norwegian American, um, he died suddenly, he had brain cancer. And, and uh, a month after he died, he came to me in a, in a vision and I, when I say vision, I mean, I'm not sleeping and I'm not totally awake. I'm in a, uh, I guess you call it an alpha state, brainwave state. And uh, I, uh, he spoke to me and he said, now's the time for you to tell your stories. You've been wanting to tell your stories, but you've been afraid. Now is the time to tell your stories and do not be afraid to tell them. And he gave me other insights too, but that was kind of what nudged me. And at that point, I mean, I've been collecting all my paranormal stories, but I, I was too afraid to to publish them because I felt like I would be judged negatively that maybe people at the college would say I've lost my mind and now it's time to retire me early and and uh, they would laugh at me my colleagues wouldn't respect me and I, I all these things were going through my mind and uh, and nothing could be farther from the truth I've 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 uh, opened a door for other people who now come to me and talk to me and about their experiences at, at the school and my co- colleagues, the administration, everybody's been very accepting. So that fear was really unfounded. But anyway, that's what opened the door is my friend, Gene Thorkelson. So I always like to mention him in every interview, both for that reason and also because he was an actor and he likes to be mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> likes to hear their own name. Yes, he was very yeah. theatrical. <laughs> See, that's, that's definitely, <clears throat> excuse me, definitely an unusual way of... Um obviously getting that trigger into the writing side. Uh, I wonder how many people get similar experiences like that, but obviously discard it or shrug it off as some kind of, I don't know, hallucination or something negative where they look more at their stability of their own psyche as opposed to embracing what that experience was. Obviously, you've lived a life where you've embraced all these experiences. You've seen them for what they are. And so that's kind of guides you forward. It's... um it's definitely something to, to think about. There must be a lot of people out there that just don't do that and give in to that fear because like you say, that fear crippled you for, for how long, how long was it that you were considering putting out work and then just not? Well, I think uh, probably I started uh, writing about my experiences when I was probably 16 or 17. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, it was 2016. So four years ago, I was, I was 57 years old. So you could say it was 57 years in the making, or if you subtract, you know, that I was 16 when I started writing about my paranormal 
paranormal experiences as 41 years of stewing on it, you know, mm. thinking about it, wanting to do it, writing it down, but, you know, only sharing stories with a few select people, not with the broader audience. And even yeah. when I started publishing, I, I you know, I, well, I, I'll give you one reaction. It was a negative reaction. It was a graduate student who was my former student at the community college where I teach. Now she is a professor and uh, at, a, at a very uh, good school. And she, uh, when she heard about my paranormal book, she said, okay, well, you're just committing uh, academic suicide now. <laughs> you know, so that was kind of my thinking was that, you know, who's going to want to hire me? Who's going to take me seriously if I'm writing about my ghost experiences and, mm-hmm. and you know, demon and an- angel experiences? And, and I, it, nothing could have been further from the truth. I and mean, people are very accepting, except for that one comment, which was basically out of fear for her career. You know, she can't. <laughs> you know, do that, even though I've been told by her mother that she has had experiences, but she's not going to share them in, a, in an academic setting. But you know, what you were saying before is very interesting about inspiration for work. You know, people say they're, you know, the muse, you know, supposedly the muse inspires us and we draw from that. But isn't that really paranormal when you think about it? <laughs> you know, what mm. is the muse? You know? You're what giving is, your, is your fate onto something other than yourself. Right. You're drawing, you're, you're drawing from something. And where does that come from? The, the, the consciousness with a C, you know, the big consciousness or what, you know, what, what would you call that? I think that's rather paranormal if by, by most accounts. Mm. And they say that everything great lies on the other side of fear. And that's something that I've definitely found in, in Mm -hmm. my own journey and my own work. Um, One thing I'm curious about is was it solely that experience with your your friend that pushed you forward or were there sort of other factors when it came around to actually sitting down and writing it? Was there anything um, else that was kind of just tipping you past that point? Did you have encouragement from other people? Did you, how did you approach writing that book? Because like you say, you've been, you've been stuck for a while. Did you leak it into other people that you knew or did you just kind of live the quiet life and then just go, bam, here it is? Well, I think, you know, when I, I mean, that was the major push but obviously i mean i've been close to doing that for a a while and i think getting close to retirement you know i mean that uh i felt like i've already established myself i don't have any other you know i don't have any ambitions of going on to a more prestigious school or something like that or you know i i I don't have any of those uh ambitions so i i thought okay uh i'm gonna take a risk you know because i'm very comfortable in my job i'm i'm very safe and uh, even if I get ridiculed, they can't get rid of me because I have tenure. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, you know, even if I, they think I'm crazy or whatever, at least I'm harmless. Mm. But um, so anyway, so I think that was part of it. And, and also my, my wife, Ginger, is, although she's skeptical, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say she's agnostic too. I like that term better. Uh, she's agnostic about this stuff. Uh, she's very encouraging. I mean, she is... Uh, very inspirational and, and supports all the things that I do. So having a very supportive partner is extremely important. I mean, it's vital. You know, if you have somebody that's totally against what you're doing or the risks that you're taking, you know, let's say she said, oh, you can't risk your career by putting that out. You know, no, she didn't say that. Mm. She said, no, that's, I support it. And so I think that was very important. And I, so it's partly, you know, my comfort in my, you know, where I am in my career. And then, of course, the uh, the the encounter with with Gene, and also a very supportive environment. I think those the combination of those things is very important for me and for for really for any writer. I think. 
Mm. Do you regret not doing it sooner or are you of the belief that, you know, that was the right time to go? I think it was the right time. I, I try not to regret things, you know, I, mm. because there's a reason why I waited as long as I did. Uh, the fact that, you know, that Gene came to me, a person that I, I loved and admired, a great friend, uh, you know, since we were little kids together. Uh, that, that was a, a very tragic thing and, and uh, his, his passing. And he's only a year older than me. So I, I, think, I, I think the time was right. The, the time was exactly right. And I, and I should add that the administration at my college, at Citrus College, has been very supportive. In fact, you know, they, everybody has been very encouraging. And I, I think I, I decided to be even bolder. I decided, okay, since uh, nobody really said anything bad about the first book, I'm going to ask if I can teach a paranormal personal history class. Amazing. And they allowed me to do that. Mm. So there's something at work other than my own ideas here. I think there is maybe something paranormal afoot here mm. with uh, getting me. To, and, and I teach a class in the fall and the spring that uh, we usually have 20 to 25 students of all ages, all walks of life that take this paranormal class and they all have a story to tell and they, they need an outlet and I provide them with a safe uh, forum for them. You know, I, I give them broad outlines of what the paranormal is, you know, different types of uh, phenomena and my own experiences. And, and we look at some scientific evidence and we have guest speakers and all that, but really it's a forum for them to feel safe to share their ideas and their experiences because a lot of people ha have had experiences, but don't really have a safe forum to, you know, to examine them and look mm. at them. I'm interested in your documentation process because like you say, you've been gathering stories for um, mm -hmm. 41 years and that's a hell of a long time to be collecting all these, these things and keeping them together. How do, you, how do you document? Is it a case of journals? Do you do anything sort of digitally? What's your, what's your process look like there? Uh, a combination of journals, a combination of writing, writing the stories as vignettes in my life, you know, and, and mm. occasionally of trying to write uh, a, a memoir of other experiences, not necessarily paranormal experiences, but every time I, I sat down to do that over the last decades, the paranormal always crept in anyway. So then I just shifted the focus. Well, rather than talk about my helicopter flight school, maybe I should talk about something, some aspect of that you know, when I almost crashed and there was a remarkable intervention during that crash, you know, that maybe I'll write about that rather than the process of how hard, you know, the military is or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think it was always part of, you know, what I was writing anyway, but now I narrowed it down to those. So it's a kind of a paranormal memoir, if you will. Uh, but it's, it's in a series of, of, of you know, kind of vignettes. Each, one, each story has a beginning, a middle and an end. So uh, they could be taken on, on their own. And mm. uh, that's kind of the, the process that I've had. So, and some of it came from, uh, instead of writing or journaling, I wrote poetry about certain experiences, like my uh, abduction experience that I had in 1977 that I didn't really understand completely. I knew something very bizarre had happened, but I hadn't really figured it out. And... Uh, I wrote, I wrote that about that experience. Uh, I did write a narrative about it, but, uh, but not so much about, the, about what I didn't call it an abduction, but, um, in a poem, I revealed the abduction, which was really interesting because, uh, you know, poetry, as you know, is a very different modality. I mean, it's, 
like speaking from your soul almost, you know, and in, in it's special, its own special language. And I, I got, I, I looked at that poem. I wrote about my experience in 1977 and then I went back and I found this poem and I thought, man, here's some validation, you know, something <laughs> that I wrote about at right after the incident happened. And interestingly enough, I had, I spoke to the, the friend of mine who was present at this thing uh, in 1977, which happened in Idaho, uh, Black Pine Peak, which is a very spooky sounding name anyway, mm. right? <laughs> but um, we were on a road trip and, and uh, there was missing time and there was, a, he was missing for a while and I brought it up with him and I did it. I was kind of coy and he got mad at me later, but I, you know, I said, Hey, do you remember that trip? And do you remember what happened? You know, do you remember when you went missing and do you, you know, do you know what happened? So I was, he was kind of, you know, remembering what he could, but you know, I have a very good memory and I've written down some notes from that time and that. And so I, I knew more than he remembered, but uh, as I was bringing it up, I brought more and more of what I thought it was. And then I had a hypnotic regression and then I got a lot of more details about the strangeness that happened. And, and uh, he got very defensive at that point. He said, I'm really upset that you didn't just say that right away. You know, why didn't you say what it was, that it was an abduction, that you're talking about aliens? And he said, he used the word agnostic too. He's agnostic about that. And he really doesn't remember it the way I remember it. And, uh, and then he, he hasn't spoken to me since. It's so he's angry odd... that, that you didn't reveal it sooner or that yeah, you're that, trying you know, to bring that, that, that memory back. I was too coy. Okay. Yeah, I was a little too coy in bringing it in. But I didn't want to just you know, call him up out of the blue after I hadn't talked to him in 10 years and say, hey, do you remember <laughs> when we were abducted by aliens? Do you remember that? Yeah. And uh, I think it would have just been too shocking. So he was very upset. But he did say something interesting or he wrote something interesting. He said, maybe I'll write my own book about the abduction experience. And he said, but you'll probably publish yours first, so, so mine won't be received well. And then he said, and maybe you feel guilty because, uh, I won't mention his name, I'll just call him Ernie. I think that's what I call him in my next book. So Ernie you know, uh, wrote that maybe you feel guilty because you did nothing while your friend was, was being uh, examined by aliens. You know? wow. So it's in one way, he's rejecting my story, saying that it's poppycock. You know? And on mm -hmm. the other hand, he's saying these other things things, you know, that I, I can't quite tell if he's being serious or joking, but he is, he is definitely mad because I've written him since then. And he, and that's been about six or eight months, I guess, since I wrote to him and received mm -hmm. a response and he has not written back. So, and, and that's typical, I guess, of some of these extreme paranormal things is that uh, if one person remembers and accepts it and the other person doesn't, it often causes a rift, which would make sense, you know? Yeah would cause a rift in that relationship. So anyway. Yeah. Well, it seems like poetry, in my mind, poetry seems like the perfect forum for that kind of experience. It's a bit more oh, yeah. sort of the experimental, the abstract, the, 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 the not so understood um, way to go. So it'll be interesting like uh, to dive into that and, and give that a bit of a read. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. it's, and it'll be in, I'm actually presenting the, the poem in my third book, the timeless Trinity, which comes out in March of this year. Uh, I actually have the the poem word for word the way I wrote it in 1977 inserted into the story and it's when I remember when I found it and I read it it was very spooky because I was I was speaking in this different language you know the language of poetry and hmm. it's almost a subconscious thing you know like because when you have a hypnotic regression it's the idea is that you 
that certain memories are blocked for whatever reason, could be trauma in this case or other reasons. And when you access that, uh, poetry is kind of like accessing that uh, for you yeah. in, in a way. You're kind of processing things through poetry, which seems like a safer modality than, uh, than maybe just a straight narrative, you know, or a, a, a autobiographical account or something, you know, the poetry can kind of disguise it a little bit and, 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 de- but deliver it, deliver the power of the, of the, of the story. You know, mm. you must have, you must have hundreds of, of stories in, in these journals sort of documented all these little snapshots that experience you've had throughout your life. What thought process goes into picking the ones that are actually going to appear within the collections themselves? Do you try and tie them together with a narrative or is it a case of sort of the ones that mean the most to you? Well, Interestingly enough, the first book, I, it was a test the waters approach. I, I didn't, I picked the ones that I thought were more standard. Like I didn't mention much about alien stuff or, mm. or that the possibility of, uh, of that or UFOs or anything like that. I kind of, I kind of tested the waters, you know, by telling the more standard, uh, you know, the related, the, the ghost stories, uh, well, standard by paranormal standards, I guess. Uh, and and demonic stuff and angelic stuff stuff that is more if you can say mainstream paranormal mm. that's kind of what I just to see what the reaction would be because I was still even though Gene convinced me not to be afraid I was still a little bit afraid so I thought okay let me just I'm going to keep the weirder stuff out of the first book and then because it was well received I went further with the second book with Timeless Deja Vu I I, I told some of the you know the uh, a little bit of the uh, the uh, uh, you know strange UFO type stuff, and then uh, the third book I'm letting it all hang out. I'm not holding anything back, and it, and that and that goes for you know not only the experiences but me as a person. Like I I tell some really personal things in there that are not very flattering about me, but I don't care. You know I'm 61 years old. What do I care? You know I don't really care. I mean, I care about what people think about me, but I think there's a lesson in what has happened in my life and the mistakes I've made. And maybe other people can benefit from that. that that's, I think that's what writers need to do. They need to be unafraid, like you said, you know, to be unafraid. And um, I think you get rewarded for that. Not that I think I'll, you know, sell a million books or anything, but what if a couple people read it and say, you know what? I, I understand what he's saying, and I I I learned the lesson from that. I'm not going to make that mistake myself. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn something from that. And if you can help a couple people, then man, you've really done your job as a writer. It definitely seems to be a bit of a theme that I've noticed in, like I say, the stuff that I've researched around you, uh, threaded throughout this conversation as well. Is this um, want to help and to pass on and to just keep lifting people up? And one thing that I mentioned in the intro that I did want to get to is um, the book. I keep saying this incredibly British or just weird. I don't know if it's just the, the sort of the <laughs> That's all right. The, I love the, your accent. You have a boots great accent. to books, <laughs> the boots <laughs> to books transition course. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that is, how that started, and what the yeah. intentions of that is? Yeah. Well, I um, I'm a veteran myself, and uh, my brother uh, fought in Vietnam, and he was severely affected by the war. Uh, he's a disabled veteran, uh, 100% disabled veteran. Um, and uh, he has Agent Orange related leukemia. He's got PTSD. He's got, you know, he's 100% disabled. And my parents, you know, they, they lived through Nazi occupation in Norway. And 
my dad was in a slave labor camp and my brother died during World War II uh, because the Nazis took all the medicine. And, uh, you know, so it was, they lived through horrible things. And that's partly the reason they came to America was to, you know, because Northern Norway was almost burnt to the ground by the Germans as they were giving up, you know, supposedly. Mm. And um, so they came to America as a result of that. So war has really defined a lot about who, who I am. And, uh, and then I served in the military myself and, and for six years. Uh, and then uh, I, when I was teaching at Citrus, I started noticing young students coming back after, after 9-11, you know, coming back from the war, and they were very much affected. And I thought, I don't want something to happen. I don't want them to be treated badly like my brother was treated when he came back from Vietnam, because it was terrible the way those Vietnam vets were treated. People blamed them for losing the war ultimately they they blamed them for how dirty the war was you know calling them baby killers and so forth and, you know they really were criticized much more so than other soldiers from other wars and basically war is always the same you know it's all mm. it doesn't matter what era it is it's always the same but um so i didn't want that to happen to these young veterans so i started a veterans program and and then naturally, uh, I started talking to a lot of people in the VA, specifically a, a man named Manuel Martinez, who was, uh, he is the director of the uh, East LA Vet Center, which is a, a walk-in counseling center for veterans, combat veterans. And we became good friends, and I started having uh, you know, his veterans come and talk to my Vietnam students in my Vietnam War class. And, uh, but then he came up to me with this idea that I'd like to do this transition course. And he even had a name for it. He said, boots to books. And, um, I said, that's a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) Americanized. Yes. (laughs) Boots to books. (laughs) But, um, so I said, that's a great idea. So let's see what we can do. So I worked my magic at the college and fast tracked it and it was offered I think the next year. So in the fall of 2007, we were able to offer this transition course for, for veterans, their family members and, and friends, supportive friends. And it was great. And it's been offered ever since the fall of 2007. We were the first college in the, in the nation, in, in, in the United States, to offer this type of course. And now it's offered all over the place, all over, the, and even in foreign countries, like in Norway, they, they do something, some equivalent of it. So, so that's really what happened. I just didn't want uh, these young people to suffer. I wanted them to be treated well. I make sure that we have a veteran-friendly campus. Uh, if I ever, you know, hear anything, I don't have any official capacity in the veterans program because I, I handed that over to administrators long ago because mm-hmm. I am not an administrator or a management <laughs> type at all. I am a creator. That's what I do and a teacher. So other people administer it, but I unofficial kind of like the grandfather, you know, walking around. And if I hear of some problem, I, I troubleshoot it to help the veterans that are on campus. So that's, that's how that came about. And, and Ginger, that's how, you know, I met Ginger. She was involved early on and that's how we got together was working together for veterans on campus. So it was specifically obviously veterans going into, was it a particular course or was it just into education? Well, I consider, you know, a lot of them, when they come out of the military, they go to the community college system. Yeah. I, I call the community colleges the, uh, the front lines of the long journey home. <laughs> they, 
they want to test the, you know, how they're going to do in college. And they're, a lot of them are nervous to use their GI Bill benefits to go directly to a university. So they want to test it out in the community college. So um, we get a lot of people raw right out of the military. And it's a very tough transition. Even if you haven't been in war, it's a tough transition out of the military. And, and, uh, and school, I had one Marine who had fought in the Battle of Fallujah. And, and he'd been horribly traumatized by it. And he said, I was more afraid walking into that college classroom than I was in the midst of battle in Fallujah because he was older than the other students, just not that much older, but maybe a couple years older. He had this world of experience, you know, life and death experience. And he felt so out of place and he felt like he might be criticized, that there might be some mention of the war and it would trigger a flashback. He was just completely frightened by the experience. And, and what we do is help them with that transition so they can, uh, you know, I, I think Manny said it best. He said it's kind of like, uh, like basic training for civilian life. Yeah. Because they have to remember how to be a civilian again. <laughs> it's definitely, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's commendable beyond, beyond anything to, to be able to support those people. And yeah. would you say that, because you obviously spent six years in the, in the U.S. Army, Oh, mm-hmm. was it U.S. Army specifically for those? Yes. Years? Yeah. yeah, the U.S. Army. Yeah. Do you find that the that from being within the military itself that's helped your writing in any way? Has that had any impact on sort of how you approach your writing that you're oh, aware yeah. of? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the military. I was kind of lost when I joined the military. I I had dropped out of the University of Washington. I had started pretty young at, at university. I was uh, 17 years old when I started. I just started school young and. I just wasn't ready and I wasn't disciplined. I couldn't finish anything. I didn't have any, I didn't show any responsibility. And my parent, my mother, my dad, I was working for my dad as a carpenter and he kept firing me because I was not a very good carpenter. And and my mom would force him to hire me back. And it was just a cycle of push and pull. And and they started talking about, you know, maybe you ought to start paying rent. And and I, I was arguing with them a lot and I said, okay, I'm, I'm wasting their money at the university. I'm just going to go on my own. So I figured the best, the quickest way to do that would be to join the military. But little did I know that there would be so many more benefits from it. You know, this idea of instilling discipline and the value of education. I remember cleaning, I was cleaning toilets in a, in our latrine in uh, West Germany in our barracks. And we lived in old Nazi barracks too, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. So I was cleaning the latrine there, the cleaning the toilets. And I thought, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? Or do I want to go back to school and finish my education and be serious this time? You know, I remember telling myself that. And so it instilled a lot of discipline and drive in, in me. And uh, I mean, I had some very negative experiences you know, working in the prison, mm. uh, you know, very traumatic experiences that you know, more than probably a 20-year-old should have to experience. But that became fodder for my, you know, for writing and my, you know, writing, uh, my writing. I did, I did a lot of writing when I was in the military. And I think a day doesn't go by where I don't think about the, uh, my experiences in the military. And I, I, uh, both good and bad. It made me who I am. It gave me the discipline that I have now to write when I, you know, complete projects and books. And I, I have that drive. And I think a lot of that comes from that that experience, realizing how important the mission was uh, in the military, but then tra- translating that mission into a civilian mission, mm. which you know, I'm very mission oriented. So I guess that's very military. Um, you know, so I, when I think about 
what I'm doing, you know, with the writing, with my teaching, it kind of goes along with what uh, a spirit that I contacted not long ago, maybe two months ago, I contacted a, uh, a person who had passed on a friend of mine uh, had, he's a Dean and he had a, one of his uh, professors had passed away, somebody that was very dear to him. And this is what happens. People know I do this. So they said, Hey, can you contact? Cause they know I can communicate with folks that have passed on. And he said, could you contact her and let her know a few things, you know, that I just didn't get a chance to tell her. And uh, I, I did, I was able to contact her and she told me something very important. She said, you know, our job, your job in, in, you know, in the life, you know, in the world that you live in is to, is their main job is to help alleviate the suffering of others. Hmm. And I think in whatever way you can do that, some people do it through entertainment. You do it through your radio show and other things that you do. I do it through my teaching and you do it through your writing and I do it through my, you know, in whatever way we can, we are all, we're all doing something. Absolutely. And, and that, that is our mission. That is our mission. And, and it, it, you know, the cool thing about spirits is, is that they, there's no BS with them. <laughs> you know, they, they, they don't have, you know, all of us, you know, not you or me in particular right now, but uh, a lot of people wear masks for various reasons to, you know, because the world's a mean, nasty place sometimes. And uh, in the spirit world, people, they, they have no more masks. They are who they are, the essence of who they are. And you get, uh, you know, they don't, I, I will say they don't lie to you, but I'm just saying regular people, you know, there are entities that will mm. be less than honest with you for various reasons. But uh, when you start getting into the demonic type stuff, but regular people who have passed on are very honest, deadly honest. They got nothing else to hide. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. nothing to hide. They have, yeah. they have nothing to hide anymore. No <laughs> to hide, you know? What does your writing day look like? How do you how do you actually get the words down on the page? Uh, I get up very early. I'm an early riser, so I get up anywhere between four and five a.m. It's very quiet in the house. It's still dark. That's perfect time to write. Uh, if it's cold, I put on a little heater uh, and uh, you know a heating element next to me, and I I just have you know something to drink, a bowl of cereal. I don't drink coffee anymore. I love coffee, but I just can't drink it anymore. Mm. Uh, tea is fine. That's okay. I can have tea. <laughs> And just get comfortable. And I, that's when it, a lot of stuff comes out. And I, I do my best work, uh, you know, early, early in the morning. And uh, then I have to get ready for work. If it's an off day, then I get a little bit longer, you know, to, to work. So the morning is the best time. And that's where I seek a lot of uh, my inspiration from that time. And, and uh, also I do uh, uh, meditative walks. I do those a couple times a week where I, I, uh, I can't meditate sitting still. I like to move around. Mm. And uh, even when I'm writing, I have to get up every few minutes and walk around, think about it, and then go back to the, to the keyboard. But um, the meditative walks is where I connect with those in, this, in the spirit world and to relatives and so forth. And I have that communion with them, and I ask them big questions. They oftentimes help me. You know, I, I still continue to speak to Gene. And he's very helpful for me in creative endeavors, especially that's kind of his specialty. And um, so I, ha I have that routine and I, I, I do something interesting that I shared with other psychics that didn't do this. I, I don't consider myself a professional psychic. I just, I have this ability and I, I, I use it, you know, uh, but I, I record myself when I'm uh, having these spiritual walks uh, 
And I, I record what they're saying. I record what I'm saying. And then later I come back and I transcribe it. So I have what I call my uh, spirit log and uh, of every experience, every spiritual walk that I've taken, meditative walk that I've taken. Is that and for the dictaphone? Through my telephone, just, you know, because our phones okay. do everything now. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I just talk into my phone and uh, I say what they're saying to me, which is in different ways. Uh, sometimes I hear it in my head, you know, what they're saying. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. in the form of writing that I can see. Sometimes it's very symbolic, like they'll show me a symbol. It's a very different way that whatever that signal line is, however it's coming through, it's, it depends on the person that you're connecting to or the spirit or the entity that you're connecting to. And then I just say what they're saying or what they're showing me. And then I come back and I listen to it and I transcribe it into my, my spirit log. And so I've been doing that uh, for the last year and a half, very, very religiously. I mean, so I, it's great. And it's great uh, stuff that I can use that I have used in, in the last two books, especially. Hmm. As a as someone who is agnostic to paranormal, mm-hmm. how would one like myself open up to paranormal experiences in the capacity that you do? Do you think is it are some people more of, for want of a better word, a conduit than others, or, or do you believe that everyone is sort of created equal and it's how you choose to open your eyes? Well, I would say this, and this a very wise person told me this: you're as psychic as you need to be. <laughs> so if if you don't feel very psychic, that's okay. You know, and, and it'll, you'll know when it's the time. You'll have an experience and you'll say, okay, that's it. Now I need to explore this further. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can force it. I think it has to kind of come to you in, in a certain way. I think I've had people, you know, that haven't had, you know, very dramatic experiences or, or you know, they try to, you know, they, they'll get a self-help book, they'll get this and that, and, and they'll get some headway there, but... Uh, it's very difficult unless you're almost, it's almost like a calling, you know, you get called to it. Like people get called to the clergy, you know, that type of thing. Hmm. Uh, I think, I think that's what it is. And then of course it's something that, you know, you wish for, but the old saying, you know, be careful what you wish for because I've had this very paranormal life and I didn't know how to control it. I didn't know how to, how to uh, manage it. So it would just come and go. I'd be in the middle of the night. All of a sudden, I'd have a vision, and then i just have to go with it. There's no way to – I didn't know how to turn it off. What I've learned through some books and through other people who have had these experiences is how to turn it off. I think it's just as important to learn how to turn it off as it is to learn how to turn it on. And I, I, I asked a, a, a man I know who's a psychiatrist. I said, is there a possibility that people who we would consider mad, you know, that are crazy or mm. whatever – that maybe they just don't know how to turn it off. Maybe they're very, very psychic, very gifted, but they don't know how to turn it off. Yeah. And he said, you know, I've never thought about that. That's a great idea. I'm going to think about it. So I don't know what he's going to do with it. You know, maybe he yeah. made you know, a little notation. We got to get this guy to come in or something. I <laughs> but, uh, but that's, I think it's, yeah, I think it comes down to you're as psychic as you need to be. But I think it's well worth exploring and, re- and realizing what's already happening that may be very, paranormal in in your life like for instance what i mentioned with you know people staring at you uh sometimes people very subtle things like uh, a song will come on the radio and you already heard it in your head before it even comes on (laughs) there's a number of people who've had that uh prophetic dreams um things you know deja vu you name it there's so many common things that people have that are technically paranormal but they might not call it that 
you know, a gut feeling, you know, what is that but paranormal? Uh, religion in itself, prayer, what is prayer but a communion with a, with a spirit, with a higher entity? Uh, or as one friend told me, he's a former uh, clergyman, he's no longer a clergyman, but uh, he told me, uh, if God isn't paranormal, who is? Hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot about. of interesting entrances into it. Yeah. yeah. But I certainly understand, um, you know, I, I really, I had a, a couple of agnostic or, or even skeptical people who've taken the class. Uh, in fact, a, a colleague of mine, he's a math professor. And uh, by the time the class was over, he was starting to ask me about uh, experiences that he's had with a cat that had passed away. He asked me, are there such things as spirit animals? Can animals be spirit? And I said, yeah, of course. And he started to tell me stories about how this cat that had passed away, that he still felt its presence. And this was a guy who was very skeptical about the whole thing. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I can understand that because there's a lot of charlatans out there. There's people trying to make a quick buck and that may or may not have any talent, but are, you know, very intuitive and in maybe not a paranormal way, but just kind of, they listen very carefully. They l listen for tells, you know, and what people say or what they look and then kind of say, well, you look kind of sad. Maybe it has <laughs> something to do with your real. Yeah. My uncle John just, yeah. Yeah. Your uncle John passed away. It was a very yeah. serious illness. Oh yes. A very serious, illness. you know, and you know what they're kind of leading them on. And there are people who do that. And that, and there's enough frauds to make a lot of people just very skeptical. I understand that. And I, Myself, I, you know, I hear some outrageous claim that I, I go, okay. The first thought in my mind is I wonder, you know, that person's making that up. Even though I've had very bizarre experiences and people could say that about me too. <laughs> but uh, I, I, it's, it's a natural, it's a good thing. You know, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very good, you know, what they call a BS detector. You know, mm. you got to have that because there are enough charlatans and phonies out there that you got to be careful. Yeah, I could I could definitely get down the rabbit hole of asking you a lot of questions about paranormal because I do I find <laughs> it I find it endlessly interesting and I think like I say from my perspective I'm not I'm not a hundred percent believer I'm not uh, mm -hmm. someone who negates it all I'm I'm kind of open to the possibility of a thousand things that I don't know um, but what I what I'm going to do now is because we're we're coming up close to time I want to try mm -hmm. and just pull this back a little bit because you mentioned a couple of things um, which I'm going to try and consolidate. Uh, mm -hmm. along because you mentioned a few times about how you're not an administrator you're not a manager you're a creative and mm -hmm. uh, again something that I found in looking at the work that you've put out you've put out um, a mixture of a lot of academic texts you've got the timeless books um, you also got Ali's Bees which is a young adult book as well um, mm -hmm. what what is it that you're trying to get from your writing how because you don't certain people tend to funnel themselves down a particular genre or they try and make themselves the the creative of x but you're also you've also got music you've got plays you've got comic books you kind of you're just experimenting with all these different things so what is what is writing to you and, and why do you write well i i'll i'll say what i think john lennon said about music you know he said music is a life raft for him mm. and that's the way I look at it. My creative process, it can come in different ways. It really is a way that I live. You know, it is my life. And uh, if I didn't do that, I don't know what else I would do. I mean, yes, I have a job and a teaching job and stuff, but the creative part of me is absolutely essential for me as a whole human being. And as far as what projects come, you know, like for instance, my playwriting, 
uh, I didn't start writing plays until a friend of mine, uh, in, once again, a kind of a dramatic, sad turn, a friend of mine committed suicide. He was a Vietnam veteran. And uh, I struggled with a way to tell his story. It's a very important story. And I, uh, only, the only thing that came out, it came to me in kind of a vision, you know, when I was running, actually. I was, well, running. I was jogging, you know, mm. fast walking, maybe better. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I pictured this young soldier in Vietnam looking at another soldier who was dancing to some, you know, like, I don't know, some Creedence Clearwater revival, like Fortunate Son, that song, Fortunate Son, you know, a 60s, typical 60s protest rock song. Mm-hmm. And the, this young soldier didn't have a shirt on and had his M16 and was just dancing around. And the reason I had that in my mind is because I knew my friend, uh, Carl, who's the one who committed suicide, didn't find out he was gay until he was in the middle of the war. That's when he figured it out. He was a young man. He was only 19 years old. And he figured it out then. And so I tried to picture, how did that come about? How did he realize that? And then I, I don't, you know, this didn't really happen as far as I know. Maybe it did. He never told me this. But that's how I pictured the entrance to the story is when he first realized and maybe he really loved this this guy or you know really enjoyed this guy's company and there he was in the middle of a war so that start that's the beginning of the play and then i figured out well how do you write a play <laughs> so yeah. I, I had to take a crash course and i i i audited uh, a, a course at cal state la with a very nice uh, very good professor uh, jose cruz gonzalez I worked with uh, uh, with Neil Weiss, who became the director of the play, actually, and I took his class in playwriting. I took a class in acting. I did everything I could to become a good playwright and consulted with other people and wrote many, many drafts. And then it uh, and then it came out, and as luck would have it, uh, the school wanted to produce it, and it went even farther. It uh, it got two awards from the Kennedy Center. National Theater Festival in 2013. People love the play. And people said, you must be so proud of your play. Well, yeah, I'm proud, but I'm proud of, of Carl because it's really Carl's story. Mm. And it's really not about me. I, I'm, the, I'm the conduit by which these stories are produced. I, that it's, I, I bring them about, but they come from somewhere else. So I'm channeling it, I guess, to use a paranormal fa- phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, these stories, these important stories that help people. And uh, I was very concerned about, you know, uh, the suicide rate for veterans, U.S. veterans. It's about 22 U.S. veterans commit suicide every day in America, every single day. It's just appalling to think about it. Mm. And my friend Carl was one of them. And I've actually lost two of my student veterans at at Citrus to suicide in the years that I've been teaching there. Mm. So it's very personal to me. and, And I feel I have to, it's not that I sit down to do these things. I have to do it. I'm compelled to do it. That's the best way I can describe it. My creative process. I'm compelled to write a play. I am compelled to write paranormal books. I'm compelled to write a book about women's leadership. Even when I was more of an academic thing, it was after my mom died. And I realized how important she was to my father and to all of us. And kind of this silent leadership that she had. So everything, I'm compelled to write it. Um, I'm not sure how I would do it otherwise, because that's where the inspiration comes from. I do find it amazing that, um, I mean, this, this show is still fairly young. This will be episode 19, I believe, but Mm -hmm. 
out of every episode that I've had and every time I've asked a question, that question or something similar, it's always literally pretty much the same answer. If you, if you peel it down to its core components of people just needing to, to write. Yeah. And it's just, I, I just think it's a beautiful thing. Um, but we are coming up to time. So okay. we will dive now into my favorite part, which is the quick fire round, which is okay. uh, <laughs> 10 questions I'm going to throw at you as quickly as possible. Um, okay. It's all just fun. Don't overthink it. Um, okay. Are you ready to go? Sure. Do I have to be quick in my response too? I, uh, that's as the quick idea, as possible. right? Yeah. Quick, quick, quick. Okay. All right. Yes. Uh, would you rather travel into the future or the past? Uh, the past. Ghosts or demons? Ghosts. Cats or dogs? Cats. One country you'd love to visit? Uh, Australia. What's your favorite place in the whole world? Northern Norway. How quickly can you solve a Rubik's Cube? <laughs> Not very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> What's the current book you're reading? I am, boy, I read like seven books at a time. Um, man. <laughs> yeah, geez, I get, them, I get them all mixed up. I would say uh, probably, uh, but, oh, um, Whitley Stryber's book, A New World. Would you rather live with no ability to smell or no ability to feel through touch? Uh, I guess I'd have to go with smell because there's some bad smells. <laughs> Who's your favorite author? Mark Twain or Kurt Vonnegut. It's a toss-up. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting their writing career? Be honest. Nice. Last nice 10 questions. Okay. That, that was, was that, quick. That was painless. It's, it, it comes quick. <laughs> it goes quick. Um, but it's, it's just a bit of fun. I, I quite enjoy that section. Um, yeah, that is fun. But yeah, so Bruce Olav Solheim, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a genuine pleasure to talk to you. Do you have anything that you'd like to plug uh, anywhere that you'd like to send the audience to find out more about yourself and your work? Well, I would like to say that uh, you can find all my stuff at bruceolavsolheim.com. That's O-L-A-V, my middle name, bruceolavsolheim.com. And uh, that includes my new comic, uh, my snark comic, and all the Timeless books. The new Timeless book comes out March 1st, Timeless Trinity. Uh, it's, you know, like I said, every, I let it all hang out. There is a lot of really bizarre stuff in there, but I think people will, will enjoy it. And uh, Daniel, I've really much uh, enjoyed our conversation. I've had a blast. It's been really, really fun. Um, but yeah, I'll put all those links for everyone in the show notes. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll tune in and see you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Great Writer Share podcast. Next week, I'll be talking to author of Time Management for Writers, Katie Forrest. As mentioned in the intro, this week's question is, what, if any, have been your experiences with the paranormal? And how do you approach the paranormal in your writing? Send in your responses by tagging at WilcoxAuthor or use the hashtag GreatWritersShare. Don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writers Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritersshare and support the show for as little as $1 a month. Until next time.